So Money, Episode 62, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. Happy weekend. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. How's it going? I'm so excited for this weekend. I'm actually in San Francisco today visiting my family. Flew across country with a nine-month-old. Yes, who feels bad for me? Uh, but we safely made it and very excited to kick off this weekend edition of So Money. This is Ask Farnoosh. As you know, I love hearing from you, so I invite you to send me in your questions, your comments, your queries, hopping on to somoneypodcast.com, clicking on Ask Farnoosh. And this has been uh, probably a record week for questions. I got a lot, a lot of questions from you all. It was a pretty spectacular week as far as guests go. We had everyone from Robert Khoury, who is a uh, online marketing expert from Australia. We had Michael O'Neill, who is the host of the very popular podcast, Solopreneur Hour with Michael O'Neill. And not to mention, we had Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, uh, very, very generous with his time. He is exceptionally busy and made time for us to talk about his investing approach, uh, took us down memory lane to talk about his first job and how and why he got fired, and uh, lots and lots of great nuggets of wisdom from the great Tim Ferriss, who is the author, of course, of The 4-Hour Workweek, 4-Hour Body, and 4-Hour Chef. And before we kick off this weekend's questions, I want to announce our winner of the 15-minute free money session with me. As you know, I'm also running a contest to encourage you to leave reviews on iTunes. And once a week, I select one new reviewer to receive a free 15-minute money consultation with me over Skype. And I'm going to read this review right now. Let's go right to it. Teacup Pot Belly Pig. Teacup Pot I can't say it. Teacup Pot Belly Pig is the user ID on iTunes. And she or he writes, as one who has minimal capacity to concentrate on finance-related topics, Farnoosh has been able to hold my attention for the entire duration of all the So Money episodes I have had the pleasure of listening to so far. Thanks for sharing yours and your guests' valuable wisdom and tips with a money novice like me. Well, thank you so much. I'm not going to repeat your name again because I will screw it up, Um, but I so appreciate your review. I love the fact that you are a novice and you find this podcast inspiring and motivating. Hopefully, we'll set you off on the best path to achieve all your riches, all your wealth. So, Here's what I want you to do now. Email me, Farnoosh, at So Money Podcast, and let me know that you heard your name read on the podcast on Saturday and that you would like to request a free 15-minute money session with me, and I will get that on the books for you. So thanks again. And this could be you next week. You know, submit a, uh, a review online on iTunes, and, uh, and we could be connecting one-on-one. I hope we do. All right, let's get right to it. We got lots of questions. I want to make sure everybody is heard. This is actually a question that I got last week, and I ran out of time, and so it's a good one, and I wanted to reserve it for the first one on Saturday. Sue writes in, and he says, hey, Farnoosh, thank you so much for all the good information you have been providing on your podcast. I have two questions. One, 
I have student loans worth about $200,000 and the interest rate is about 7.5%. I had tried to refinance a loan with my existing bank, but they said that I need a co-signer due to the fact that I, quote, lack individual credit history. And I don't have anyone to co-sign. I'm not sure what it means. And the bank uh, doesn't, and I guess the bank hasn't been helpful to him explaining either. So he says, I called Equifax and they told me that I actually have great credit history. My score is in the 750s and I've never been late on my payments. What other options do I have to bring that interest rate down? Okay, so I'm really annoyed that your bank, your existing lender, was so um, dismissive, it sounds. So what you need to do, and I, what I would do, is call the lender back. And now that you have evidence from Equifax that your credit is actually in really great shape, 750 is outstanding for a credit score, you want to go back to your existing bank and say, look, uh, I understand that there was some confusion about my credit history. It turns out I have really good credit history. I can show you, have a record of it, either fax it to them, email it to them, whatever form they need it to be sent in, and say, I'd like to really have a, a conversation about how to reshape this loan so that it can be more affordable, whether it means reducing the interest rate, um, extending the term. Now, extending the term is not my favorite thing to do, but if you really need a cushion, uh, you really need to create some breathing room in your budget. Extending the term can help you accomplish that, but just realize that if you actually uh, take all the time to pay off that loan in the 15 years or the 20 years that it was extended to, you will pay a lot more interest in the long run. But in the short term, it could give you really uh, some nice wiggle room. But now that you have evidence from Equifax, go back to your existing lender. And uh, if this is a bank that has a physical location, uh, I don't, I don't know if that's really the case. But that would be my second tip: is if this bank has a physical location, walk in. Don't call. Walk in and talk to somebody face to face. I find that when you talk to people over the phone, sometimes it's really easy to. For the person on the other end, you know, whether it's the lender or the, you know, the, the biller to kind of not get it, you know, they don't look at you, they're not really relating to you, they're sort of just reading off of some sort of um, pre-written script and they fail to really have a humanizing moment with you, right? So it's important to sometimes get that face-to-face, to walk in and say very kindly that, uh, you know, I'm a customer here, I'd really like to talk about my loan, and sit down with someone and have them really help you out. And here's a good thing to throw at them and say, I understand that maybe you don't see any obvious options for me, but what would you do if you were me? You know, put the ball in their court a little bit and see if that will allow them, if that will encourage them to think a little bit more critically and analytic and analytically about your situation, I always like to say that to so to sometimes when I feel like I'm I'm hitting a dead end with lenders, and I say, well, what do you, what would you recommend I do? What would be your best advice? If you were me, what would you do? And sometimes that makes them think in a different way, and sometimes it can be a lot helpful. And your second question here is, my mother has a Roth IRA, and she's 54 years old. Does she have to withdraw all the money from her Roth by the time she reaches 59 and a half, or can she leave it there until she retires? Well, the answer is you generally have to start taking withdrawals from your traditional IRA or your retirement plan account when you reach 70 and a half years old. Roth IRAs, however, do not require withdrawals until after the death 
of the owner. So in your mom's case, she doesn't have to make withdrawals when she reaches 59 and a half. And in fact, she can wait for many years. Uh, and so those are the facts. And if you have any more questions, I got that off the IRS's website, the IRS, irs.gov. As, as uh, daunting as it sounds to go to the IRS's website, it is actually well curated. It's actually really easy to find stuff in their search bar. So I, I recommend that for everybody. If you have any tax questions, the IRS is pretty good at articulating, you know, what's allowed and what's not. Thanks so much for your questions. MJ writes in, says, I'm 39, single, and applying to grad school in order to obtain an MPH, which I, I am taking that as meaning a master's in public health. Hopefully starting school within the next 12 months. I spent my 30s digging myself out of the financial mess I created in my 20s, and I'm finally financially stable. I have low expenses, no debt. I have an emergency fund. I've got a Roth IRA and a 401k. However, I can't pay for school out of pocket, and ideally I will quit my current job to focus on school and re-enter the job market when I complete the two-year program. I am likely to take a pay cut when I do re-enter the job market. What considerations do I need to make in terms of taking on student loan debt and pausing on retirement savings? I'm very certain that I want to pursue this degree. Well, congratulations, MJ, for really bringing yourself to a place of financial stability, independence. You should give yourself a pat on the back, and uh, we should all we should all learn from you. This is fantastic, and I know it's not uncommon to really wreck your finances in your twenties. I did it for you know the first few years into the real world, and but you know the, the important thing is how you recover, and it's really nice to see that you have come, uh, you've arrived at the other end of that. A few thoughts, general thoughts, and, and not just for you, but everybody on the on the podcast who is contemplating either college or graduate school, specifically graduate school. I went to graduate school, so I can talk a little bit about my personal experience. A general rule of thumb that I think is really important to consider is when you're taking out student loans for higher ed, you ideally want to borrow, ideally, you don't want to borrow more than your projected salary in that first year out of school. So hypothetically, if you anticipate earning 50K the first year out of school, well, you don't want your student loans to be more than that. You want your student loans to be below $50,000. Ideally, you know, $30,000, $25,000. Although I know I say this and quickly people are rolling their eyes. And they're like, Farnoosh, you're insane. I mean, graduate school is super, super expensive. I know I was just checking the cost of my graduate school for journalism that I attended 10 years ago. At the time then, it was about $30,000 for a 10-month program all in. You know how much it is now? It's over $90,000. And so what is happening is people aren't enrolling. The school actually just announced that it's uh, reducing its uh, its staff. People are realizing that, you know, I'd be insane to spend $90,000 on a graduate school degree. I mean, not even spend out of pocket. It's like leveraging to go to this school and then you're going to be in debt for how many how many years? And then your starting salary, I guarantee you, will not be over $90,000, um, especially if you don't have a lot of work experience prior to going to journalism school. So that transitions me now to my next point, which is that it's really important to be aware of the market upon graduation. Not only what you might make, but what is the job market like? Is it healthy? Are there a lot of jobs? Are there enough jobs? You know, folks going to law school, I would be very, very cautious 
and apprehensive about taking out, you know, six-figure loans to go to law school. Yes, the degree has value and has merit, but the fact is we have more lawyers than we have lawyer jobs in this country. It's not uncommon to hear about students graduating from law school unemployed for the first year or two. So you really need to uh, kind of assess the situation and imagine the worst case scenario. Imagine that you might not get a job for the first six months or the first year or that you will get a job that will pay not as much as you would like. And, and how will you be able to pay back these loans given that circumstance? So be really honest and realistic about the aftermath of graduate school, you know, the financial cost, the financial realities of being a graduate from this program with potentially uh, a loan that that is, you know, five figures, six figures big. If you do the math and you realize that your dream school costs far more than your starting salary, then I think you really want to rethink your approach. Not to say that the degree is not worth it, but perhaps your approach to achieving that degree needs to change. It may mean that you want to apply for a more affordable program. It may mean that you need to apply for far more scholarships, many more grants, consider work study, consider going part-time, consider living at home with a relative or uh, a parent to be able to at least offset the cost of your living costs. And so figuring out ways to reduce your overall cost for attending, very, very important. I have a guest that I have yet to air her episode, but it's uh, with Lynette Calfani-Cox, and she just wrote a book about how to reduce the cost of higher education. And she said it, I think, perfectly, which is that if your school, if your dream school is so expensive that you will be living like a pauper when you graduate, maybe that's not your dream school after all. It sounds like a nightmare school to me, you know. So, and but that isn't to say that you shouldn't go to school, you shouldn't get your degree. But it's look, there's a lot of ways to get that degree. You know, there are a lot of ways to go from point A to point B. And so, spend your time thinking about how to strategically get yourself that degree without getting yourself into oodles of debt. I'm not saying don't take out any loans, but you should supplement the cost with some cash or with scholarships or with grants. By taking the next 12 months, you said that school is in the next 12 months, to save as much as you can. And with regards to your retirement, I mean, I would hate to see you put retirement completely on pause for these two years you're going to be in school, but I understand that that's something that might have to happen. And maybe what you want to do between now and then is to contribute a little bit more to your retirement to allow yourself to maybe take a little bit of a step back over these next years. But as soon as you get back on your feet and you're out of school, I want you to be a little bit more aggressive as well with retirement to make up for that lost time. And so those would be my considerations for you. They would be my considerations for myself if I was to go to graduate school. You know, if the school you want to attend costs so much more that you're going to be struggling to pay off the loans when you graduate, it might not be the right program. It might not be the right approach. Um, I would hate to see you stuck back in debt, especially now that you're out of debt. You've worked so hard to climb yourself out of that debt hole. It would be a shame to see you fall right back in um, because of your student loan situation. I mean, I just answered a question about for uh, a listener who has two hundred thousand dollars in student loans, and I could I could feel his pain through his question. I don't want to see that happen to you. Seema writes in, she says, how can I find out about socially conscious, socially responsible mutual funds and stocks that do as well as big corporate mutual funds and stocks? I enjoy investing, but of course, I don't want to invest in McDonald's, etc. 
Well, and this is a great question, Seema. I think it was last week that I answered a listener's question about how to uh, direct your dollars more consciously when you're investing. If you're somebody who believes in, say, global warming and wants to invest in companies that support, um, you know, environmental issues, you know, should you do that? Is that kind of your obligation as an investor? And, and I think for some people, it definitely feels like it is an obligation. And if you want to be more conscious and socially conscious about your investment dollars, there are a lot of resources and investment plans designed for people like you. And traditionally, mutual funds have been uh, the typical way to invest in a socially responsible investment, and the acronym for that is SRI. And there are a lot of different fund companies. Um, for example, for example, Calvert uh, is one off the top of my head. There's also um, Guidestone funds. You might also want to look into exchange-traded funds or ETFs. We talk about those sometimes on the show. Uh, I know PowerShares and iShares are two uh, funds that offer these types of funds. And then as far as resources to learn about this, uh, socialfunds.com claims to be the largest personal finance site uh, for socially responsible investors and investing. And then I also came across this book. I was reading an article on, in Forbes about uh, socially responsible investing, and they recommended this book called Low-Fee Socially Responsible Investing. And actually, I looked it up on Amazon. I, I hope it's still true by the time you hear this podcast, but it was $0 if you bought the Kindle version. And I'll put these sites, I'll put these resources at somoneypodcast.com after the show so that you can, um, you can refer to them. So great question, Seema, and good luck. Lily writes in, she says, hey, Farnoosh, I currently have a cash rewards card and I'm coming up on my one-year cardholder anniversary. I'm thinking of switching to a travel rewards card. I also want to ask for higher credit limit and lower interest. Should I do this with my existing credit card company or open an additional card? Well, Lily, I think if you plan on traveling a considerable amount in the future, in the near future, and you have already discovered a couple of really good, strong travel rewards card options that will give you great benefits and you can earn free flights or hotel stays thanks to the accumulation of miles or points. I know a lot of these cards will even give you an instant like 25,000 plus uh, miles when you just sign up. So like, bam, you've already earned you know maybe a free flight or a free one-way flight. And if these are all perks that your current credit card does not offer, then I think, yeah, I think why not open up a really good travel rewards card that makes sense for the type of travel that you do. So I would say, just as an aside, if you plan to travel predominantly with one airline, then you might want to look into that airline's branded credit card. On the other hand, if you're travel is kind of uh, a mixed bag of different kinds of airlines, different kinds of hotels. Uh, you might want to look into a, a travel rewards card that has no limitations in terms of where you can use the points, where you can use the airline miles, and no blackout dates. One thing I would keep in mind with these types of rewards cards that are very rich in their rewards is that sometimes there is an annual fee. Sometimes it's waived in the first year, but it's something to keep in mind as you do the math, right? You want to make sure that if it is like, say, a $75 annual fee, that you're earning a lot more than that in perks uh, as you spend on this card and as you pay down the balance. And uh, with regards to 
asking for a higher limit and a lower interest rate, I would do this with your existing card company. So you say you've been with them for going on a year, assuming you have been paying off your balance on time every month and you've been a good standing customer, certainly, and everybody should do this, call the customer service hotline and ask if they will raise your credit limit, not because you wanna go and go on a shopping spree, but because tell them, I wanna uh, you know, improve my credit score. I wanna um, nourish my credit score and I know that by having a higher limit, will work in my favor, will help me increase my credit score. Because, you know, just to, as an aside again, uh, your credit score, one very, very big variable in determining your credit score is your debt to credit ratio. And the smaller that debt to credit ratio is, the better for your score. So let's say you have um, two credit cards and combined you're carrying a $1,000 balance on these credit cards and the limit combined on these credit cards is say $10,000. So you are 10% utilized, you are 10% utilized debt versus credit. If you raise the credit limit to say $20,000 from $10,000 and you keep your balance to 1,000, then you are just 5% utilized, right? Which is even better. The lower your credit utilization, the better for your score. So, and this is something that I think anyone who has been with a credit card company for a good time, at least a year, who's been responsible, never late, should ask. And it's one of those things where quite rapidly you could see your credit score improve um, by the next billing cycle typically because uh, it is such a big variable in your credit score calculation. And reducing the interest rate, if you're one to carry a balance, obviously yes, ask for a lower interest rate as well if you've been a good customer because that will ultimately mean money back in your pocket in the form of saved interest. So yes to opening up a travel rewards card, I think that might be a good idea for you. And yes to asking your existing cardholder to increase your limit, reduce your interest rate. Okay, thanks so much for all your questions, everyone. Um, this is a wrap for this Saturday edition of Ask for News. As you know, I take time on the weekends to respond to your questions and uh, as a reminder, if you leave a review on iTunes, um, I every week pick a new review, a new reviewer to receive a free 15-minute money session with me. And I'm still gathering, uh, and I'm still considering folks to receive the free Tim Ferriss book bundles, ebook bundles. So if you are interested in that, hop onto somoneypodcast.com and click on Tim's uh, podcast page and you'll see the directions at the bottom. So thanks everyone for tuning in. Have a fantastic weekend. And of course, I hope your day is so money. 